0: Welcome to a special edition of the Darden admissions podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share a recent conversation from our ongoing Office Hours Faculty Spotlight series featuring Professor Peter DeBeer. Peter is a member of the Global Economies and Markets faculty here at the Darden School of Business. and I recently caught up with Peter to talk about his background, what led him to Darden, several of the elective courses he teaches, including his Economics of Water class, as well as a book he recently published with his brother, To America and Back Again, all about his grandmother's life. I think you're really gonna enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here is my recent Office Hours conversation with Professor Peter Bear. All right, well, welcome in everybody. Um, thank you for joining us for this latest installment of our ongoing Office Hours conversation series. This is our faculty spotlight. It's brought to you by Darden Ideas to Action, which features all kinds of great uh, research and publications from Darden faculty, as well as Darden admissions. I think this is a great way for you to meet incredible people who teach uh, the students here at Darden. And we're, jo- we're joined today by a member of the Global Economies and Markets faculty Peter DeBayer. Uh Peter teaches in the full-time MBA program as well as the executive MBA program. And so, Peter, thank you so much for being here and taking time out of your day to join us for this conversation. All right. Yes, it's a, it's a pleasure uh,
1: uh, to be here. I think it's a great initiative uh, to whoever started this uh, kudos thing or her.
0: All right. Well, and to our attendees, um, just a, a couple of things. But as we kick off, um, we'll take the first 15 minutes or so to kind of do, talk a little bit about Peter's background and how he ended up here at Darden. And then we'll start to transition uh, to his work, his research, publication, uh, some of the things that he's been working on recently. If you have questions as we go along, I imagine uh, you might. Please feel free to ask via the Q&A. We're going to turn off the chat now, uh, but we will keep an eye on the Q&A. And so, Peter, um, let's let's start with what I think is a really uh, very basic question. Uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Who are you, and and your background? All right. Yes. Uh, so, most relevant, I guess, for for Don is I'm an economist. Right.
1: So, and uh, probably as you, as I speak, you already hear that uh, there's a bit of an accent. So, people typically want to figure out where I'm from. So, and yes, I uh, I grew up in Belgium. Right. So, that's where where the the accent comes from. So, uh, and uh, I mean, a bit. Uh, um, as an international economist, that's really my my specialisation. Um, I live an international life, so my wife is from Germany, right? So she she's actually a historian, right? So and I have two children, right? So uh, one is uh, an engineering student at VT, and the other one is as much younger, as nine, right? So and they they all speak our languages, so it's a bit of a of a mess for those who have dinner with us. So this German, this Flemish and uh, there's English spoken, right? So, um, as I said, my my specialisation is on the one hand international economics, right? So topics like globalisation that is really what I care about. At the other hand, it's the case that, and this is about ten years ago that I started working on water, right? So the the economics of water, and these are two topics that are dear to my heart, and I I have the opportunity in at uh, Darden to basically teach those things and at the same time do research about them
0: so uh i'm in a happy place well uh, how did you get interested in economics it, it's always interesting to hear how faculty got to the the area where they sp- really spent their their life and career
1: so it, it it wasn't it wasn't a direct road to economics so i uh i come from a uh, a family that uh, was a bit Artistic, where there was lots of interest in, in cultural things, so it was it was kind of natural that, and we traveled a lot, so it was kind of natural that I wanted to study languages. So I studied German and literature and philosophy. So and it was actually to that extent important to me that I considered going for a doctorate. So I had a, a scholarship to go to Germany. So and in Germany, I took in, uh, my first economics class, uh, hist- uh, economic history, and I felt like that this. Uh, this way of merging theory and empirics, right? So that and this way of trying to explain the society that this was uh, uh, giving me uh, more traction than uh, uh, the cultural philosophical angle. Um, but I should say that um, I'm happy that both are in my, in, my, in my life. My wife is a historian, a cultural historian. So when she... Is from Germany, so the this this element is not completely lost. So, but uh, yeah, that that was basically uh, how I by staying in Germany, taking economic history classes, basically then said, okay, I'll uh, go back to the drawing board and I'll start from here. And then basically, I uh, did things in a fairly quick time and ended up in, uh, in the United States in uh, in the Michigan University of Michigan to do my PhD.
0: So that's uh, that's the road. Well, did you always know that you were going to come to us the US for for school? Was that something that that you wanted to do, or did that become clear as you went down the economics path? Oh, it, it, one thing was clear
1: that I would uh, would study abroad, right? So I, we had traveled a lot. So I remember when I the first year that I started at university, one of the first things I did was uh, basically go to the international office and figure out what it would take to uh to get abroad right and get scholarships and how, what I had to do what the hurdles were yeah so that was that was clear but then um with uh, economics i mean to uh, these were very prestigious scholarships that i had to to get so it, w- it was difficult that you would say look yeah i'll, I'll get this because there, there were like 30 in belgium who got this these things right so uh, so but, yeah as a as I uh, was uh, progressing in economics, yeah, increasingly, uh, since, I mean, economics is still, to some extent, dominated by uh, the Anglo-Saxon world. I mean, it has been changing, but um, so certainly when I uh, started, so it was clear that if you, uh, if that would be your specialization, uh, this would be very helpful to come to the United States. Yes, that, that, that's, that's true. That definitely was, was the case.
0: So how did you get to Darton? How did I get to Dublin? Well, basically, I, I was before
1: at the uh, University of Texas, right, in, uh, in Austin. So in, uh, my wife was uh, finishing her PhD. And so and then we basically had to look for two jobs, right? So in the uh, uh, University of Virginia was one that uh, wanted to hire both of us, right? So, in, so my wife teaches in the history and German department and I'm here at, at Darden so um, um so and I must say that um, to some extent when I started here I did not really know all that much about the school itself and its uh, particular approach so it was a learning process so in it's I mean it w- probably, probably it's similar to students who come here right so they have read about it right so a bit in the end, I feel like it's when you're here that you uh, understand what this whole thing about case method, case teaching is about, and uh, the community. I mean, it's yeah. Um, I, I yeah, I had heard about it. People had talked to me about it, but I. I it's only when I was here that I really
0: uh, got a sense of what this really was about. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because you're someone who's been recognized uh, over and over again for the excellence of your teaching and the experience that students have in your classes. You were, you were featured on a faculty Friday not so long ago on uh, Darden social media. And it was great to see all the posts from students about how much they loved your classes and how much they they remember uh, from uh, the classes that, that you've taught. And so um, have you always been someone that had that passion for, for teaching? Sometimes we you start down this sort of academic world um people you know start to think a lot about research and publication yet darden is a place where it's both things right well, I mean, yeah it's both things it's for me also
1: it's both things but i um, i should say also that uh, so my parents were teachers my brother's a teacher so it's it's been something that was uh, was important so it's like almost given to me in my uh, dna right so in um, this there's, there's something which is uh, almost addictive to teaching in the sense that, um, next to doing research, of course, is that, that um, and I, I feel this most when I uh, teach in the first year, right? So when I teach the global economics and markets class, right? So that there are many people who have never taken economics, right? So in, uh, in this, I mean, this is a very condensed course, that's, that's for sure. So but you, you have this opportunity to, to uh, open people's eyes and have them look at the world that surrounds them in a, in a somewhat different way, right? To think about how incentives matter, right? So how the global economy, how these different countries interact with one another. And, so, and especially when you teach the first part of economics in the first uh, quarter, which I did in uh, uh, the the Emma parts, right? Is, is that you see people's eyes open, right? And this is incredibly rewarding. And then, especially also, and that's another motivation, is that to teach it for a group of students who, uh, I mean, who will who, uh, who in, in 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 many instances will actually play a, a, a leading role in society, right? So to help start that conversation about how. The economy works, and how a, a firm fits in there, and how um, once you see or understand how the economy works a little bit, I mean, you there's got to be a way in which that will translate in how you you'll run your operation, right? So, and I think this is an this is incredibly rewarding to have that conversation, right? So, so, and for me, I need both. I need teaching. I need research. So it's like if I've been in the class too much. I feel like okay now I, it's time to really uh, get down to the nitty gritty again, right? So and, and after a period, I mean, so like as I said, so I'm now in a period of uh, of research. After that, I feel like okay, it's time to come out again. <laughs> and so, and, uh, so I need both. It's a, it's a
0: it's for me a, a an equilibrium that works well. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's been fun to talk with faculty about the the case method on these conversations because for many of our prospective students. Um, They've never learned in this way. Uh, it doesn't necessarily reveal itself. The name doesn't exactly tell you uh, what it is. How do, how do you explain the case method of what you do uh, in these uh, global economies markets class in, in your electives uh, with with prospective students? That's right. So I mean, so I,
1: I would when you say case method, I think for me, the emphasis on is on methods. Right. So it's uh, it, it's it, it's a way of teaching which. Um, as an instructor your tool is basically the question you can ask question questions right so and uh, the the students are the ones who uh who basic i mean they have studied the material they are the ones who have to give content right so and it's that interaction that game of me asking questions and and students providing content right that build uh build this class and so this is so and i emphasize method very much because i mean for me it's a way of teaching it doesn't really matter whether it's really a, strictly speaking a case so for me this can be a video can be a speech can be an article right so uh, i i think that's that's really important and then um what's what's nice about it is that um that it's a way a way that is if, fits very well the the profile of uh, our students, I think, right? So that, yes, you've got to know how things fit together or in this particular case, how, how the economics work. But in the end, and I think our, our graduates really excel in this, is that you, you've got to be able to explain this in everyday language or with some precision though, right? It's not just chatting, but you have to be able to explain that to the people that you lead, right? So, in, uh, so the communication is incredibly important and the setting, right, of us asking questions and students responding is basically a, a friendly environment to uh, train these skills. And I think, um, I think it's very relevant, not only in, uh, for MBAs, but especially for them, right? So I, I make the case that basically... It's um, a way of teaching that's uh, incredibly valuable. It's uh, much richer than uh, just uh, going through PowerPoints, right? There's way too much of that, right? So, and uh, um, I would suggest that it, it would be good. And I mean, you see some of that also in other disciplines that people uh, have more attention for this um, higher level way of, uh, of 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 teaching, right? So, I mean, it's... I mean, as I said, I I did. um, I came from an economics department, right? So I was a fairly interactive teaching, but teacher. But it actually does take some to uh, to find your own. I mean, the same way that we also said that students have to find their voice, right? The way they can operate that's in sync with who they are. I mean, for uh, for a teacher, that's the same. You got to find your own way. Of uh, expressing yourself right that's in line with who you are, and uh, students will notice that, and you notice that yourself if that so it and it does take uh quite quite a bit. i mean, I remember one of the things that um for me was was an an uh, initial challenge and i mean, and I think it later on turned uh, turned out to be some of my strengths, but initially. So the when you ask a difficult question, and I'm a bit hard nosed, so uh, so I asked a bit the difficult question, and um, um, the answer doesn't really um, get you much further, right? So how to respond to that, right? So and initially I uh, I was just I would just bring in somebody else, but that's really not how this should work, right? So and then basically this technique to really with take smaller steps get to a point where uh we've all learned something and the student who was struggling in particular has learned something right and then release and open it up right so that's that's um something which i struggled with initially but which i've kind of finessed right so and it's uh it's it's become something that's sometimes a fairly fun part of, of the deal right and so it's I think my sense is that many students know that that's how things operate, right? So in that, uh, they'll have to do this little dance with me, right? So and we'll get to a point where uh, we resolve things, but there, there may be a moment where we actually struggle a little bit to figure it out.
0: Yeah, I loved your point uh, around sort of the parallel paths, right? Students finding their voice and finding their footing, and of course, this is a journey that faculty have been on as they. Teach here, and the thing that's come through so clearly in these conversations that I've really enjoyed spotlighting for our prospective students is just the craft uh, that the faculty have for that time. You know, the, the care and attention, uh, the fact that they're thinking a lot about how they're teaching and how they're engaging with students in the classroom. Uh, Peter, I wonder. I mean, you obviously taught a number of classes here here at Darden. Do you have a favorite case? Uh, something that you always look forward to the conversation uh, about? Um. So the, I mean there are many, but um, so there there is one case
1: which I uh, uh, like in particular, and it relates to my the one. It's the first case actually from uh, my uh, global economics of water class, so which is this this one class on on water, right? Which is about the uh, Renaissance Dam that Ethiopia is building or has built on the Nile, right? So in uh, um, why do I like the case? Well, so it's when students take the the water class, many enter with a certain preconception about what really the big issue for water is, and then many will say, "Look, you know, the uh, the um, wars of the future will be about water, right?" So, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this phrase: "The wars of the future will be about water, right?" So, and uh, and this is very much people who make that argument very much look at water in a very limited way they see it as really a matter of supply you got enough water or you don't right whereas the the whole thing i mean the the purpose of the course in a certain way is also to to look at it more broadly right i mean there's not only supply there's demand as well right so and there's lots of things that you can do if there is scarcity if there's not enough water right to uh to live up to that situation. Yes, one is to very narrowly focus on supply. The other one is to say, you know, maybe I can use my water a lot more efficiently, right? So from the perspective of Egypt, right? So, I mean, they are wasting lots of water. Yes, there isn't much, but they are using it very inefficiently. And if you actually start thinking about this, working on the demand side and on a more efficient use, You would be a lot cheaper than engaging in war, and it's actually beneficial, right? So, so, so it's, it's this. uh, I mean, we. So, for the 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 many times I've thought, each time it's this aha moment that comes through very strongly, right? That suddenly, all right, we we got to open this box here, right? So there's, so and that's where this this framework of economics uh, comes in, where you say, look, all right. uh, what are the different aspects that we have to look at if we want to uh, understand the phenomenon of water, which is typically taken for granted. And typically, um, the predominant view is the one um, that's on supply, right? And this is a bit in line, this is a bit in line with, uh, with how water historically has been studied, right? So it's been a a a field uh, dominated very much by uh, engineering and environmental science, right? So it's only like in the last 10, 15 years. And I mean, the the nice thing is there's an openness, but there's in the last 10, 15 years that really also the uh, uh, engineering folks and the environmental scientists have opened up and they realize that, look, if we're going to solve some of these water issues, it's not just a question of what do I construct right so this thing's got to operate there is the the human factor you've got to get people to agree on this right so and um and it's there that basically social sciences uh increasingly play a role and uh, uh have to play a role right so and so and that's where um the uh the nice thing about uh, the water topic is because it's uh, water is everywhere, right? So that it basically puts you almost by default in an interdisciplinary setting, right? So this is incredibly rewarding. How uh, I mean, it's on the one hand humbling, right? Since um, look, you work with people from uh, from all different fields who look at the world differently, have different methodologies. So you don't, which you all don't necessarily understand and have their own emphasis right so to to then juggle this right so and uh, yeah so then and as I said the the nice thing about this uh, renaissance dumb case is that this brings this uh, as, a, as, a, as a, at the start of the class brings this very much to the fore it's like all right this is where we stand here okay let's unpack this
0: how did you get interested in this particular topic, Peter? You mentioned that you came to this kind of economics of water, looking at this particular uh, question about ten years ago. Uh, what what sparked for you? So I mean, so this is um, in a way it's a
1: coincidence, right? And it's it's one tied, it's one tied to Darden in a way. So I'm not sure um, if I would have gone someplace else that this would have happened. So. Um, Um, as you as you know right so there are lots of people coming through at Darden right so there's too many people you could basically spend every day talking to people who come through which which you should not but you could right so and there's uh, often invitations that you get to uh, to talk to people who have a question so and I'm fairly selective in these but now and then I say all right yeah okay maybe this this looks interesting so so there was somebody from the Nature Conservancy who was looking for uh, somebody with a sense of economics who could talk about water in a global setting. So when uh, I uh, I talked to uh, this person, it was actually a very enjoyable conversation. I, uh, I learned that um, many of the questions were related to, or at least that the framework in which I operated was one. That would be amenable to addressing these questions, and at the same time, I understood that uh, within within water, that apparently there wasn't too much thinking that really um, took economics seriously. Right. So, in the, so I thought, okay, that's. Uh, I mean, so this is something as a uh, as a uh, uh, as a professor that I do. So I do research i do teaching and i always have like five ten percent of my time where i play meaning i do something where i don't necessarily uh know whether whether this where this will lead right? so but i i allow it to to give it a chance right so and this was uh with water like this right so when uh we uh ended up uh uh, giving a uh, a course together, we taught a course together on main grounds, right? So and uh, then we um, ended up writing papers together. Um, then yeah, I started uh, teaching the class. I mean, so in at a people thought that because there aren't really across uh, MBAs programs, there are very few, if any, where you can take a class on water, right? So so the the school was. Uh, was open to it it was like in the usual ways that uh, we operate It's like look if there is demand if you can get students interested sure uh, more power to you just uh, go ahead right so in uh, um so yeah this has been incredibly um uh, rewarding cooperation uh, with uh, uh with that person Brian Richter is his name right so and we're actually currently I I uh, we got an NSF grant, right? So National Science Foundation grant, $700,000, right? So this is a very prestigious grant, right? So he's also part of this, right? Where we have a team um, across a few universities that uh, that work on water. So yes, uh, it started with a coincidence, but uh, this, uh, yeah, there has been a very rewarding 10 years working on water, both research-wise and in the class. Yeah.
0: So we're talking about uh, your economics of water elective and you've been teaching this for a number of years. I, I wonder how has the topic evolved uh, since you've been teaching the class, you know, where you started to where you are now? Well, obviously, since uh, I, I, uh, I'm not a hydrologist, right? so there's been
1: lots of learning right, on my part too. Right? So the, the thing I, I like about the class is it's been really one of a give and take Right. So in in different ways. Um, So what an important part of the class is uh, is the projects. Right. So uh, that are presented at the end of of the class. Right. So in uh, this has been incredibly rewarding because um, basically you have a set of very motivated students. Right. Who are have an entrepreneurial streak. Right. So who who bring to my attention and to the attention of of the other students. Right different topics from around the world i mean there's no there's so much going on in the water there's no way i can cover all these topics right so in in this way basically uh i learned a lot from them right so this has 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 been very rewarding and then another element in that case is that we had um always one or two speakers right so in uh Um, I was very involved. I'm still still in with uh, uh, the rest of the university, right? So we brought somebody who then stayed here for one, two days, sometimes longer, right? So I had conversations with them and oftentimes uh, um, wrote a case with them, right? So that basically now is that many of the cases surround uh, or about topics or people that actually I've had or students have had a real interaction with right so it's uh i feel like it's uh increasingly a course that on the one hand gets you the framework which i think is essential to think about uh water right so in this economic lens at the same time it's uh i think like it's incre- increasingly anchored and and grounded in uh and backed up by uh sometimes tough conversations that we've had uh while writing this right so in uh, um yeah the, the the last so in uh, september was probably one of the the best runs we've had it was i had an incredibly motivated uh group i mean I, there was it was really oversubscribed i tried to you know if i uh don't go beyond 50 and but i mean our, our ideal is 40 40 students so that basically these projects can put uh there was such a long uh, waiting so i pushed it up to 50 but there were still so many so i'll yeah it was it was incredible but uh yeah um i, I learned a lot and uh, yeah it's when you have this this conversation that starts and there, there's a realization where look um we can actually bring in new insights here, our new, f- I mean, no, nobody knows all the cases of what's around the globe, right? So uh, we can all, all contribute in a way, uh, if if everybody sees this, that looked at, so this is like a public good here, right? And everybody chips in, then uh, yeah, then this is incredibly rewarding. And uh, it's, yeah, it's it's been really a joy and uh, also bringing in more
0: things to focus on, right?
1: Yeah,
0: definitely. Uh, we got a good question in the Q&A. You'd mentioned that a lot of folks, they at the supply uh, side of this question and, you know, this idea that there will eventually be wars in the future about water, access to water. Um, but then you said the importance of thinking about demand and how we think about using water and can we use it more efficiently. Uh, one of the folks who's here today asked, uh, do you have an example or maybe is there a case that you all read that looks at Someone, a company, a country, really being efficient with the use of water, or interesting mm-hmm. work around. So that maybe, question. maybe, maybe Brett, you can show this water graph
1: that I. Uh, uh, so so, I mean, in, in a way, the the question that's that's being asked relates to uh, uh, relates to something I'm focusing on at this very moment, right? So we we have this NSF grant, which is uh, to study the. Um, the uh, Colorado River, right, where, as you know, we have a serious drought issue, right. So, in uh, so in the the graph that I'm showing, right, is on the one hand, right, the uh, supply, right. So This is the, the light blue, right, the supply, the water that's available for a very very long period of time, right. So, and obviously there's variability in this, and then you have the the darker blue, which is the water consumption, right. And so, what you what you clearly see is that Water consumption has been steadily increasing, right? Steadily increasing to that extent, right? That's in uh, the, the last 20 years, right, 20, 30 years, there have been quite a few instances where basically the there's way much more water consumption, right, than there's water available, right? And then that's only possible because there are these reservoirs, right? These reservoirs we uh, we all learn about, right? So that that are, are historic low levels, right? Because we are basically overdrawing the balance that we have, right? So, and so, this is the, the 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 challenge of the project is also to to see what we're gonna do about this, right? So, how are we gonna bring demand more in line with supply, right? And so, and one of the things that uh, oftentimes, um. Is an important factor is that it's pricing, right? So um people take water for granted, and um it's incre it's in. I mean, the, the most outrageous example is Saudi Arabia, where basically they have so little water, use so much, and it's virtually available for free, right? So very long time it was like this. In in the United States, still, in many instances, water is priced way too low, right? So in the, the, there's no way that you can bring um, demand and supply in balance if you do not price properly. And, because, and this pricing signal is incredibly important because it, it's not just about, all right, if I um, pay for water, then I'll probably save more water. But it's, it's also the incentive it provides, right? the incentive for investing in saving water right of, or the, the the return on on innovation right this is all tied to to what you talk to entrepreneurs some in the u.s they say sometimes that look why is it that uh the innovation in the water sphere is is lagging and to some extent that's related to the fact that look water is is not priced properly so uh yeah who, who's gonna be willing to to invest in it because there isn't a return, all right so
0: yeah it's an interesting point um about the connection between pricing and investing or people moving into seeing this as as uh well an industry that they they would want to innovate in. um I hadn't thought I had not thought about it um in in mm-hmm. that way. Um, you want to talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing um, out in the American West, looking at the Colorado River. There's been a lot of conversation about the extreme weather uh, in this region of the United States. Uh, certainly, all, all the rain recently in California. Been conversations about um, how do we capture precipitation when we have these kind of historic. Like, there's been a, just a lot of conversation around mm-hmm. this region of the country and the disruption that's happening there. Um, tell us more about the work that you're doing. So, and on the large last- first
1: macro and then where we started right so it's basically the the nice thing is it's it an interdisciplinary approach right so we'll basically we'll we'll bring together reservoir operations so we have an expert on that right so with um i mean agriculture is really the, the most water intensive uh industry that we have right so how water is used in agriculture is incredibly important so we have uh, some people who are really can uh, measure very well how much water is actually used by agriculture, right? So, and then there's the question of how can we affect the allocation, reallocation of water, right? Is there potential for some market-type mechanism, right? For example, implicitly could be a following program where you pay farmers, right, a given... Amount per, per, per uh, for the fact that they would not be using a uh, um, a part of their of their acreage, right? So when, um, so th- that's the broad thing. Or is it like how can we puzzle these together our way in? And that's where I'm working on uh, currently is very much trying to understand a very complex water rights system. Right, so it's not like a, you and I could just go out and uh, take whatever water we can. No, you, there is there's a, a you've got to have that right to do it. Right, so and this is this is related to uh, a very somewhat ancient uh, and or antiquated system. Right, um, where basically it's prior appropriation. Right, so it's basically seniority. The older rights have the first pick at the water. Right, so and. So the, the amazing thing as we are looking at this is that, uh, to my knowledge, people haven't actually looked at this very carefully, how this actually operates, right? So and that's where we start because I, I mean, or that at least where I start as part of the group to, to look at this water right system, is it actually working the way people say it is, right? So um, how is this working? Right, so when uh, if if there are, I mean, the way this normally is is that, look, if uh, one very senior water right doesn't have enough water, it will place a call. Right, so basically, that will make sure that the more junior rights will have to give up their water so that the senior rights can be fulfilled. Right, so h- how is this exactly working? Is it the way we think that it's you you place a call and then? Uh, the junior right gives up, is that effectively how it is? Right? So what determines a, that a, uh, a senior right makes a call? Right? So these very basic questions and the surprising part is that um, even that's at the heart of the um, the I mean the, 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 the water distribution and redistribution, um, it's one that uh, my sense is people haven't looked at too carefully. So so this this is a potentially a project with
0: quite a bit of mileage, I think. Yeah, the interesting thing about water also is that it has this uh, well, it's utility overlay, so you've got you' got the government involved. you've got this legal component to it. You've also got a, a market component to it, uh, companies doing this. you have consumers. you have the broader societal yes. uh, context environmental context. what What role do you see government I mean, when you think about this, how do you think about that government uh, layer? I mean, so there's there's one thing
1: always where um, um, that in the end, because it's a public good and because it's an essential, I mean, water is essential for life, right? So that in the end, the government can step in, right? So it's it's like if you really think, I mean, if you think, look, I'm going to sit on water, right, and wait till it really gets so bad and then I'll... I'll sell it at exorbitant uh, prices and I'll make so much money right so that there's a limit to this because in the end it's not your water you have the right to the water right so and if if it really gets too far a government can step in and will be asked to step in right so so this 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 but, but of course people, if the government steps in this there's got to be an agreement, right? So there's politics then, right? So you've got to agree to step in. And um, so in, in Colorado, we'll do amazing parties or in uh, along the Colorado, the amazing parties that you have this incredible drought, but uh, it seems like it's still not bad enough till the agents get to cooperate, right? So and uh, also then... <laughs> uh, yeah if a government steps in it's got to i mean this is a political decision right so it's, it's got to be backed up because somebody will uh, uh draw a, la- a, a line in the sand here right so it's yeah it's it's interesting the political economy is very interesting right so at the same time it um i mean you you can see um especially in a country like ours where property rights are incredibly important that if you are sitting on these senior rights Right. Um, Yeah, I guess you you'll fight hard to give that up. I mean, that's at least uh, what what you see in the West. I mean, even if in uh, you were in situation where you think that the extreme scarcity would uh, have people see a common good or a a common uh, better future or a way of solving or addressing that. uh, We are not there, right? So, and this is, I mean, this is then a political dimension that enters the problem, right? So, we're, we're, um, yeah, it's a question also then as a society what are we willing to uh, do um, to actually address that problem, right? And so, and we are at a very, very difficult spot in that regard, right? So, um, as uh, I don't have to, explain that to you, how, how currently in the US, um, there's not much of a taste for compromise, right? So in a, you see that to that extent that, yes, in a, this very um, strange situation along the Colorado
0: that uh, we, we haven't found a way yet. Well, Peter, I feel like we could keep talking about the economics of water. This is an infinitely fascinating topic and and one that obviously touches all all of our lives Uh, because water, as noted, is is essential for life. I want to make sure, though, that we find some time to talk about your other elective uh, that you teach, uh, Managing International Trade and Investment. Um, I think this will also give us an opportunity to talk about a book that you recently published with, with your brother as well. But before we get to that book... Tell us a little bit more about about the this course uh, managing international trade and investment. What's it all about? Right. So, um,
1: well, so I mean, maybe I should start with um, um, focusing on the the perspective. Right. So basically, this is how we start the conversations. Right. So I uh, I say, look, um, for business open markets are incredibly vital, right? So basically there is no business with, I mean, business needs the global economy, right? So you need to uh, reach suppliers across the world. You need to reach demand across the world. So it's incredibly important. So, and I basically argue or say, look, the perspective of the course is that more than anybody else, we in a business school should understand how globalization works, right? So more than anybody else, because it's our bread and butter, we should understand this. And this implies, however, that we should understand the benefits, but we should also imply, understand the drawbacks and the implications of of globalization. And as long as we are only focused on how it benefits us and do not see the implications it may have that affect people adversely, um, we will have a very hard time to make the arguments that we want to uh, to live in a, in, live and operate in a globalized world, right So it's basically more, look, how can we, as a business community preserve globalization that is currently. Uh, uh a point of discussion a point of contention right and uh, so and then basically it's trying to unpack this right so see what's behind what some of the driving forces of globalization are what are some of the rewards what are some of the understood implications that we'll have for um reallocation for inequality right so what the the policy framework is, right? So we 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 have to really understand this very much, and then also realize that um, yes, uh, globalization has an impact on inequality, but it's certainly not the only one, and it's it's probably not even the most important one, right? So and then so I mean, there's technological change, right? So there is um, access or unequal access to to education right so there are different tax schemes that benefit people differently right so there's many other reasons why we have this massive inequality but what's what's amazing is that um a lot of people will actually pinpoint globalization or pick it out as one of the most important ones right so why is that right so so that that's basically a uh, Sometimes a difficult conversation, right? So where you uh, where you see, look, um, all of us in business schools especially, right, we stand to benefit from globalization, right? So um, we are typically fairly high-skilled labor, right, workers, right? So who reap more of the benefits from a globalization, right, multinationals, have benefited quite a bit from globalization as well, right? So, but we should not forget that um, for lower-skilled workers, there can often be a a negative impact, right? So, um, and that um, multinationals, right? So, have evaded taxes, for example, on a massive scale, right? So, these are things that if we really want to preserve uh, globalization, we will have to think about How, as a business community, uh, we we think about this, right? so it is not about me preaching, look, this is what you've got to do. No, it's a conversation. I don't have the answers to this. But one thing is clear that as we benefit from globalization and if we want to preserve this, we, as a business community, should more than others understand its implications, right? So that's basically the 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 gist of the of the course and it's it's sometimes a very lively conversation as you can imagine
0: how do you make space for current events i mean i'm thinking about just where we are right now in the world i'm dealing with a pandemic what that has meant for some of these conversations you've got all the geopolitical stuff going on right now yeah which is sort of moving into uh, maybe even a potentially new ordering of, of the world and the global powers. Um, how do you make space uh, for these kinds of conversations in addition to all the other things you have planned for the oh, course? So that's not difficult. I mean,
1: this basically bubbles up uh, as we go, right? I mean, there are explicitly cases that deal with uh, the trade policies of the last few years. So this is uh yeah, this is really not. Uh, it's much more. The challenge is actually much more you say, all right, let's take this step by step, right? So let's let's start over these 14 classes. Let's start building up an argument, right? And, and then each time discuss that argument, but, but not right away think that, look, after one class, you can figure out the whole economy. I mean, this is not something that you can settle uh, in a tweet, so to speak, right? So you've got to have a... So and it's it's the challenge in the course is more to pace people. Say, look, all right, I hear you. Let's have this conversation, but let's bring in what all we know in the
0: field about it. Yeah. Well, building on that, uh, where do you start and where do you end uh, in this course? Like, where, where's the where's the starting point for students? I'm curious about about that.
1: Yeah. So the, that varies, right? So you have students who are very uh, literate and in international economics right so and you have others who uh, who basically um have questions right so in uh, so the the uh i what i find the course is successful if it's the case that people realize that look it's a complex issue um I personally don't care where you end up Well, i do but but that you are you your Throughout the course, you're presented with lots of stylized facts and things that are irrevocably happening. If you want to take a position on globalization, you've got to find an argument that takes care or considers all of these. That's basically the,
0: the, the challenge, right? All right, Peter. Well, I want to make sure we have some time to talk about uh, your book, because I feel like this story around globalization is a real personal uh, dimension uh, to this. Uh, you want to tell us about the book that you uh, Wrote with uh, with your brother recently.
1: Yeah, maybe you can uh, show my uh, my. So this is this is a, a a project that basically started a bit as a a coincidence. So it's, a, it's a, a, a book that I've written with my brother, who's a historian, uh, about my grandmother. Right. So and uh, it's it was just published in uh, in Belgium, and uh, we are bringing it to the United States. And why is this an interesting story? I mean, apart from that, uh, um, it's my grandmother. Is that she came to the United States in the twenties and thirties, and she worked as a maid in the US, right? Uh, especially a maid of uh, of uh, rich people, and then she she actually came back, right? So and the 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 um, the, the why. This was something that was worthwhile writing a book about. this. So once there is the, the, the coincidence that we found a few years ago letters and documents and, and pictures, uh, so lots of information, right? So but it also basically is an opportunity, is an opportunity to look at a very turbulent part of history, right? From the perspective of uh, or following the, the the sojourn of a maid right of an an edu- educated woman right so which is not typically how uh, history is written right so we found this is a very interesting opportunity to 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 uh, follow her path um, at the same time it's an incredibly turbulent period right so this is uh, also the, an interesting period this is uh, the the jazz age and then you have the depression right so and it's it's very much A a, a story about globalization, because she basically is in the United States as this massive flow of immigration from Europe comes to an end, right? Where you have an incredibly uh, diverse population, right? The levels of migration, right, are the same now as they were then, right? So, and you have this very layered society where she's basically... uh, put in right so this is a this is one and the second part is that it's it's very much also a, a story about inequality right so not just because she works for these incredibly rich people for example one is is the the, the lawyer who uh negotiated the Panama canal right so the the other one is the family associated with uh, smith barney right so the investment bank right so so through her, you get a sense very much this this incredibly layered society with this where some people are incredibly wealthy, whereas she as a maid has to navigate this right so so and this is uh um look history does not repeat itself for sure, but there are parallels uh things that you see that look the inequality the level of migration the uh the um especially the, the, the economic crisis that hit the 20s, I mean, after the, the depression, right? And then here, right, if you we had the financial crisis, we had COVID, right? And so in these, these crises lay bare this incredible inequality, right? So, in, And there's a bit of a sense, right, that also, um, that until we, we solve some of these burning issues, it will be very hard to move forward. Right. So, and if you you saw that in the U.S., right, it's basically with with the war and then the 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 great society, right. This this inequality really got shrunk, right. So, in, uh, there was a bit of a a new social contract, right. So, now obviously this is a bit uh, the background of the story for us as well, right. So, it's basically a uh, a conversation with her past, right. So, bringing in personal things because. Um, as you know, um, and this is a bit the challenge that uh, an academic faces. We write fairly technical um, papers, right? So um, yes, we teach where we try to uh, translate, have a conversation with students about these issues, right? So, but there's also a, a broader public, right? So, and and this was a bit an attempt on my part, together with my brother, to to write a book that um, talks about of course my grandmother but also globalization inequality and uh, following the story of an ordinary woman right and uh, try to uh, to narrate and uh, talk about this in a different way so you know, it was it was it was incredibly rewarding but it was a challenge and i i don't think without the covid crisis this book would have been here it was more like, look, the first year, right? So you basically, uh, you were, we were all, right? Fairly restricted in our uh, uh, social interactions, right? So, and that's basically where uh, we were all figuring this out. It was a time with uh, quite a bit of uh, tension and certainty. And I tried to uh, translate that tension or this anxiety in, in a productive way. I just... Uh, wrote right so um yeah so so that this is uh this is a bit the story of the book and it's a bit it's a story of globalization about inequality and that's why i think it goes beyond uh just telling her story even though my takeaway for her is like what's what's it what's i found surprising is that um even though she was this uh, uneducated woman that she clearly made her own decisions right so she was not just floating on the the waves of history, so to speak. So she made her own decisions. And uh, even though you could already see that Europe, uh, things were darkening there in the 30s, that she came back, right? So she had her own reasons. And at the same time, it's a story that almost got lost. I mean, we knew about it, but really not much. right? And it also says something about... Uh, the role of women right so that uh, in a way um yeah the the model when she came back was the typical uh, household where basically the, the 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 man is the boss he um he uh earns the money right and uh the woman steps back in second position right takes care of the education of the kids and even though she contributed significantly, also brought quite some saving back. So this really was not part of the uh, the narrative of uh, her legacy. Right. So so that that's a little bit the uh, the story. So and anyway, we we are we we're, we working on uh, bringing this to the to the US. So reception so far in, in Belgium has been quite quite good. So but uh, yeah, we we got to work on uh,
0: the US now. Well, I imagine it was, I mean, to learn, you probably learned all kinds of things about your grandmother that maybe you didn't know or you um, maybe just had heard about but weren't sure about. I, I wonder, uh, Peter, someone reading this book, what, what do you hope readers take away from it? Uh, you touched on a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, somebody closes the book, what what do you want them to think about?
1: Oh, so I think there's there's really many different levels at which you can read. This one could be just focusing on her, right so in as i said that even though she was this uh, this woman with very little education was a maid right so that uh, yeah she uh, worked her way through things right so uh, but i mean uh, you could also look at uh, trying to figure out the uh, society in the us and how it contrasts with with a country like belgium right so in this this very layered society that i should say um was um, was also anchored in uh, immigration laws that were very unfair, right? So, I mean, uh, I don't have to repeat this here, but we know uh, Chinese people were excluded, right? So it was the case that um, also within the European migration population, right? So that uh, um, the ones from Southern Europe, Eastern Europe were the, the ones with a bit of a darker skin, the ones uh, that... Uh, had a different religion right so they, these were not welcome right or they they were welcome but uh they were restricted right so in the um even in the made community right for the for the well of people you saw that yes these were basically only the uh more the uh belgian german scandinavian french uh Uh, immigrants that had these jobs right so if you were from southern Europe if you were from eastern Europe um, you had no space in this right so then so you could you could um, read this book and get a sense of wow I mean um, what we now think of as look uh the United States, this started off with a really incredible, I mean, not started off, but like in the 19th century and then beginning of the 20s, right? So it was an incredibly uh, layered society, right, with uh, with star differences, right, in a way that, um, without making a cheap comparison, but that you see, look, um, the different ethnicities, right, so that we, uh, how we deal with, with them, how we... Uh, accept them that's that's an ongoing discussion and clearly at the time that was so there's there's some uh um th- yeah the, it's it's that could be a way of looking at this right so looking at this uh uh then um there could be a way of uh seeing how uh um you have a a, a belgium right a small country as contrast right so but uh that uh, is also a country where um, that has its own past, right? So uh, I don't have to repeat, as we know this. It's also a colonial uh, yeah. country, right? So when my grandmother left, this was uh, Congo was still a colony, right? So how does such a background inform uh, a maid who also, I should say, was not only active in New York but also spent some time in the segregated South, right? So so there's this lots of possible ways in which you can read this right so it's not for me to say this is the the takeaway but clearly I was informed by uh m- yeah my uh my expertise in globalization and then pairing up with my brother who's a historian to to say look um Given that we got this actual accidental trove of uh, of letters and photos and uh, documents, to say, look, is there a way of uh, of looking at this life that uh, was always in the background?
0: Right. So. Well, Peter, it's been great talking with you. I, I feel like we got we could keep this conversation going for a while, but um, I want to I want to wrap up here by asking. Um, the last question that we we typically ask it for our guests here on office hours. Undoubtedly, we've had some folks here uh, on this session who've gotten interested in the topics uh, that you've been talking about, things that you've shared here. Uh, what would you say um, three books uh, that you would recommend uh, for people to check out if they're interested in learning more? In addition to, of course, uh, your your book about your grandmother that will be uh, in English uh, in the not too distant future. Yes. Um,
1: yeah, I mean that that's a bit of a difficult question, but so, so let me uh pick a few, right? So uh, I'll pick three. I'll, re- I'll restrict myself to three, all right. I promise. So um maybe um on um on water, right? So um there is a book on um on uh, um, Israel, right? So Israel has faced really incredible challenges as far as water is concerned, right? So in uh, there's a book by uh, Seth Siegel, Let There Be Water, right? That basically deals with it. And it's it's the nice thing about it is, is well written, right? So and it it gives you a very good sense of what, uh, what the water challenges are and how they're being resolved within that context, and also um I mean, water touches upon many dimensions, right? Also, in this case, the the international relationship, Israel and its surrounding areas, right? So, how it could basically also uh, make its knowledge of water and its expertise a uh, an incredible asset and exploit that in the region, right? So that that's uh, that's a beautiful book. Then. Um, on um maybe in line a little bit about uh, what i was talking about about the the book of my mother and there's a nice short book uh by gerber on uh, american immigration a very short introduction right that basically um sketches a little bit the the migration largest migration may uh, so this big migration may have, but then also up till now right how, what has changed how we've dealt with it and uh, how it was anchored in societal debates. This is a, a, a nice little book. And then uh, there is a, a third one that's more related to my gem courses, right? So to the, um, so, and it's a, it's a book by Krugman. Um, it's it's the, the return of depression economics. And uh, so it, it, he wrote this a while ago, right? So after the, the financial crisis, but I think it's incredibly important like to to understand where we are right since uh i feel like um our response to the financial crisis right in 2008 right and then in part also a repeat of that with covid right has put us i mean i'm not saying it's still the same questions but i think yeah this 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 book um is a, is a very nice way of, of starting to think about the the challenges in an international context that uh, uh, economists, students of economists, MBA students, right, uh, should uh, should be aware of, and will will get uh, a, a better view on uh, after they've taken our uh, German course, which is really. I should emphasize this. This is really a very nice, put to, nicely put together course uh, that looks at the global economy through different cases uh, from different countries. And uh, this this is a bit of an appetizer,
0: I think. Well, Peter, thank you so much for for joining us for this session. It's been such a pleasure to our attendees uh thank you so much for taking an hour or so out of your out of your friday to come and and listen and learn as always we'll share the recording uh, of this conversation on our podcast, uh, Experience Darden and the Exec MBA podcast. So keep an eye out for it there. And uh, of course, we'll also share it on our blog, Discover Darden. And thank you, as always, to Maggie Dotson for assisting with this session. It was great to have such an en- great engaged group. Uh, Peter, lots of great questions in the Q&A about water. And uh, certainly a lot of people were sparked around, around that topic. So um, unfortunately, we can't always get to them all. But it has been a wonderful conversation. And thank oh. you all for your time. Have Have okay. a wonderful weekend. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. And that was our recent Office Hours conversation featuring Professor Peter DeBeer, a member of the Global Economies and Markets faculty here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.